And if you don't open your eyes to the space, you may be there, but if you never opened your eyes and really looked at that space, it's like the matrix, these two universes side by side, but you've got to step out of one into the other. There you need a red or a blue pill. In this case, you just got to open your eyes and go there. Welcome to the African Optimist Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gura, and on this show, I unearth the wealth of opportunities that exist across the continent and speak to the many inspiring people who are shaping its future. Now, today's guest, Gigi Alcock, has made it his life's mission to convince you to see the informal sector with different eyes. Yes, he is a marketing man looking for the next opportunity for his often big corporate clients. But more importantly, he is a passionate advocate for the power individual business owners have to help build and be the backbone of South Africa's economy. Not only that, he advocates for the power an informal sector has to change an economy's future. Gigi grew up as a white boy in the rural Zulu village of Masinga. His early life and move to big city life, aka Johannesburg, are captured in his first book, Born White, Zulu Bread. But it is his next two books, Carcinomics and Carcinomics Revolution, Carcinomics being a slang hybrid term for township economics that we focus on in today's conversation. Now, if you believe the word township and the phrase informal sector spells the words doom and gloom, this episode is for you. I think there are so many different aspects to explore with your book, Carcinomics, but maybe to take you one step back and to ask, you know, this is called African Optimists, yeah. and partly because most people are so pessimistic yeah. about the future of South Africa, the future of the continent. Tell me, what, what do you think, if you'd have to summarize the pessimism that exists, especially here in South Africa and compare it to the rest of the continent, how would you describe it? Yeah. So it does drive me crazy, partially because, you know, I like using the term as being a passion-filled optimist. And also uh, I see myself as an economic activist as well. So no more of the political side, but the economic side is really the opportunity to transform our society. But, uh, you know, what drives me crazy is that we're just surrounded by uh, negative um, things which are generally not true to the majority. So we have two things like we're the most unequal society on the planet, which is not true if you take the total society. It just says that we have the poorest people in the world and some of the richest people in the world. And so we take two data points, two extreme points, but we don't look at what's in the middle. So for argument's sake, the most equal society in the world is probably Chad because everyone's poor. So what is a measure like they're telling you? Or Switzerland, everyone's rich. So then, um, you know, we have the story about having massive unemployment, that we have uh, between 32 and 40% unemployment, depending how you want to read it. And again, it's not true. There is high unemployment, but it's not true. My argument is it's closer to 15% real unemployment or lack of any form of income. And so we're operating ourselves, assuming that one in two people in the population is unemployed. And if that was true and they had no other form of income, then we'd have serious poverty, malnutrition, and, 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 which we don't. So clearly there's something else going on. We have other things like our economy is flatlining and our economy is in decline. And then you have 
all these things that show that it's not in decline. I mean, and it drives me crazy. I read these headlines, which are in essence kind of negativity sells, negativity attracts, you know, it's clickbait in many ways. And, and one of my favorite hate ones is a Daily Maverick one about a year ago now, probably, which said cash crunched consumers turn to alcohol and clothing. And the story is actually about the fact that ShopRite's liquor business was growing at 12 or 15%, and that uh, pick and pay clothing division in their annual reports had grown by 17%. And so instead of them going like, how come people are able to spend money on clothing and alcohol? They have to twist it and say, cash crunch consumers. I mean, like it's such an absurd headline. It seems that people with no money turn to Johnny Walker and Nikes or Adidas, you know, it's like, that's the recurring theme. We have this other thing about informality, you know, everyone lives in a shack and we have these pictures in Time magazine of rows of shacks and then a line and suddenly there's beautiful houses with swimming pools. And it's kind of like that's South Africa. Now, if you just look at that statistic as an example, only 12% of households in South Africa live in shacks. 86% odd of households in South Africa live in formal dwellings, in nice houses, sometimes really nice houses. So only 12% of people are living in shacks. But we extrapolate this image of shacks next to houses, or we fly into Cape Town you know, to go to our wine farm, and we look down on parts, parts of Kailiche, not the whole of Kailiche, that's full of shacks. And we go like, oh, everyone's living in a shack, isn't this terrible, and so on and so forth. Um, there's an extraordinary book called Factfulness, and the subtitle is How the World is Getting Better and You Don't Know It. It's an extraordinary book. Probably everyone should read it. Mm. One of the things he points out in that is that the world is getting better and we don't measure the right thing. And he talks about things like don't take extreme data points as measures, so like the poorest person and the richest person. You actually look at the spread of people. But he also talks about anecdotal bias, where we hear the story of a granny from an Uber driver or from our domestic or whatever. We hear the story about a granny who lives with her kids in a shack and they can't afford to live and it's terrible. And it's a 100% true story in most cases. But we extrapolate that in our negative kind of focus to say everyone is like that, you know. And I get people saying to me, but my maid told me about. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but your maid is not a statistical majority. Your maid is telling a story that's true to her, but is not true. You know, the other one is the media bias that Factfulness talks about. And he talks about the fact that you read a story about the same Gorko who lives in a terrible situation. And what, and it's, it's a 100% true story. But again the media outlet is sharing it as a story that represents the total population and it doesn't represent the total population. And then the third one is historical bias. You know, what was true a few years ago, is it still true today or tomorrow and so on? And things like research and things like media are retrospective. They look into the past. They don't look towards the future and they generally aren't talking about things that happen now. And this drives this negativity you know, I'm not saying there are negative things. I'm not saying that there aren't real big issues we've got to deal with, which are, are troublesome issues. But what I'm saying is let's put them into perspective and let's celebrate the good parts of these stories. And when you actually look at the whole story, particularly when you look at the township economies and informal economies, if that's what you want to call it, or if you want to look at the majority of people out there, they're spending money, they're earning money, 
They're sending their kids to school. They're having great parties on weekends. And could things be better? Sure. I'm not uh, someone with uh, rose-colored glasses who say everything's cool, but let's put that into perspective. I'm just thinking of people listening to you who are not earning a hell of a lot of money. What would they be thinking about what you're saying? Would they identify or is this a guy who's just talking about marketing and (laughs) trying to convince big business to come into townships and make more money? So my answer would be to go to those places. Don't do some research. Don't read a news article. Go to Soweto. Go to a church in Soweto on a Sunday and see and go to visit people's homes after church where they have a seven colors lunch, which is like this, like every color. It's like the white rice and the maroon beetroot and the red meat and so on. So you have seven colors meat. Go visit a Storkfell meeting and listen to everyone chatting and stuff like that. Go go to those places. Go to a tavern on a weekend when people are supporting the soccer and Go down a township street, I said to the CEO of one of the top banks in South Africa. He said, Gigi, this guck, there's no way this is as big as it is, this economy. I was like, go, go to a township and then come back and argue with me. And he was being interviewed then a while ago on a news show. And he was like, I went to the township the other day. We completely undermeasure the informal economy. Everyone's busy. Even some recent work done by Stats South Africa shows that only... 11% of households in South Africa are living on the breadline. 11% of households is about just under 2 million households. That's out of 80 million households. It's terrible. It should be zero. And that's the kind of job my parents were involved in and gift of the givers are involved in and NGOs should be helping. And most importantly, government's responsibility is to help those people. But the point is, is that 16 million households aren't on the breadline. Why is the headline hogged by the minority? Why aren't we celebrating the 80%? We should be focusing on the majority because that's where we can also create real change. We work with RCL, who is a supreme flower. We work with township bakers. uh, And most of those bakers aren't baking bread. They're baking cakes and biscuits. And there's a huge demand for cakes and biscuits. I work on the Heineken group of brands and you look at the tavern environment and... um, they're all upgrading their taverns because their customers are saying, I want uh, women's toilets and I want uh, I want to sit on a crate. I want to sit on a couch and I want Wi-Fi and I want a bigger screen so I can watch my soccer there. And why is that? That's because people are moving up the economic levels. They have a higher expectation from the businesses that supply them. The fastest growing business in South Africa, the most imported product in South Africa is hair extensions. The beauty sector, lashes, nails, hair extensions and wigs is just booming. It's doing incredibly well. These are all factors that indicate things about our society and about our economy. The first job that unemployed youth start in the townships is a car wash. Now, every single street corner has a car wash. What does a car wash tell you? It tells you that there's a large number, there's 10 million unfinanced cars on our roads. In essence, people have paid for their car. They're not owing the bank anything. And those are private cars. Those aren't cars they're using for work. And that's why they're going to the car wash because they're polishing the tires and washing the car and putting a scent on the inside. And, and these unemployed youth are all like doing car washes. Now, car washes is an indicator of of something, as is is beauty product imports. 
these are all indicators that our economy is doing well. Um, if you look at even just the these, these remarkable sectors, uh, PG Bison is a company that supplies high-end quality kitchen surfaces like cupboards and almost like marble-like, but it's a wood um, surface for kitchens and bedroom cupboards and so on. PG Bison is part of a listed group. All the other companies in the listed group are struggling. The only company that's booming is PG Bison. And PG Bison will tell you that they're supplying townships with high-end kitchen surfaces because people are spending on making their kitchens more beautiful. Now, those things didn't happen like yesterday. They happened over 20 years, people spending little bits of money into their homes and stuff like that. But they have had these little bits of money and are spending them on that. You know, and we're trapped in this kind of simplistic view of poor people or middle-class people in the townships sitting there struggling, and, and it's wrong. We should be celebrating the transformation that they have made in their own lives with limited and sometimes not so limited means. Tell me about the transformations you've seen when you've traveled in townships. What are the stereotypes that maybe you even had yourself when you went into townships? Yeah. What have you seen that completely turns on the head what people think is happening business-wise in townships? So the first thing is that most people, when I say I work in townships, they go like, oh, spaza shops. And it drives me mad. Yes, we have a large number of spaza shops in the townships, but in the past, the spaza shops was an emergency purchase, a little hole in the wall, very expensive. The spaza sector has completely transformed now and is the supermarket type outlets to the extent that the spaza sector is growing at 26.5% according to Nielsen, who's an international entity, and the formal sector, um, retail sector, is growing at around 14%. So you've got this acceleration where now the primary purchase point for a township consumer is at a supermarket that we would normally have called a spaza shop. And these are really nice spaces. They're five to 10% cheaper than ShopRite or pick and pay. So people are having this great shopping experience. They don't have to stand in a queue like they do in the formal sector. They don't have to pay a taxi. They can walk down the road. I've seen the same kind of transformation across almost every sector. The fast food sector has really accelerated. Now, that's a 90 billion rand a year sector. The spaza sector is 160 billion rand to 180, according to some figures. Uh, the fast food sector has accelerated, and where people would have wanted to go for a KFC or McDonald's or something like that, there's this real growth of township food that's not cheaper, but is culturally preferred and kind of soul food. Everything from chicken dust to quarters to shisanyamas to what people call them a blady and, and so on and so forth. What is chicken dust, DG, for those who <laughs> so, don't know? Yeah, so chicken dust is a grilled chicken. Um, it's a 1kg grilled flatty, grilled on charcoal on a um, braai on the side of the road, generally Deli absolutely delicious. Got this basting and spices on it. Anyway, the chicken dust, there's kind of two stories around it. One is that it's called chicken dust because you sprinkle this dust of spices on it. And the other one is because they're on the side of the road, the chicken ends up having dust all <laughs> over it. I prefer the first <laughs> explanation. And you get all sorts of other food. So, so there's been transformation again where you kind of like on the weekend, you'd go to your tavern and you'd have a shisanyama, you'd have a grill. Um but now it's every single day and the Mahodu Mondays is huge. Um, Mahodu is tripe and it's delicious, you know, I see you cringing, but <laughs> yeah. I love tripe. And, and, so uh, do it, yeah. Anyway, so that's a delicacy. Why on a Monday? 
uh, after the weekend, if you've got a babalas, if you've got a hangover, you have tripe, and generally it's quite uh, hot, and the hot heat makes you sweat, and that sorts out your hangover. Then you also see a huge growth in hair salons and beauty. It's growing. You see it everywhere. I spoke about car washers, uh, township mechanics, the Uber industry, and Bolt and all of those guys would rather service their vehicles at a township mechanic. So that's also accelerated. Now, there's the interface between formal and informal economies. But the township mechanic sector is booming. Backroom rental is booming. South African households earn 20 billion rand a year in backroom rental. That's not measured in your unemployment figures. This is people who earn a passive income. It's 25 billion rand a year earned in Spaza rental over and above that. So that's another kind of sector we've seen booming and growing. There's not a sector that you haven't seen accelerate. The, the fresh produce sector, the mamas who sell on tabletops selling fruit and veg, that's accelerated. If you look at the Joburg fresh produce market, they turn over 8 billion rand a year in fresh produce and about 60% of their turnover is going into the informal township sector. Just tells you the impact they have on the agricultural sector. There's a growth in natural products and healthy eating and hence vegetables have really accelerated and um, you have a large number of guys with trolleys walking down the road with a little bicycle hooter selling veggies door to door and those veggies are fresher than you'll find at a fruit and veg city because the Gokos got in a taxi at 4am taken a taxi to City Deep to the fresh produce market, bought her vegetables and by 6 o'clock eight o'clock, they're on the street selling. Um, so what we've seen is, is over time, this informal economy was always there, but driven in many ways by the slowdown of the formal economy and the unavailability of formal jobs. I mean, I'm the first one to say there's less formal payslip jobs, but that doesn't mean unemployment is lower just because you're only measuring formal payslip jobs. Um, but because of that, there's a growth of people making their own business. And across the board, everyone will tell you in the formal economy how their business is shifting. And they just generally say to me, particularly people like myself, they're like, we just don't know why. How could it happen? Everyone's poor. Everyone's unemployed. We've got massive inequality. How is it possible? Let us look at exactly this question of how it is possible. Because one thing I, I picked up, which astonished me and I saw my own uh, prejudice was Often what is being offered in townships is more expensive. There was an example where a shop right, I think, was, was doing prepackaged meals and across, but they weren't yeah. flying off the shelves. Um, and yet across the road, there's something that's more expensive, but it's flying off. Yeah. So why is it possible? And why have townships been able to cause this revolution? I think that there's this assumption again that poor people want cheap stuff. So everyone's on this kind of affordability thing, you know, oh, let's try and be more affordable. And I mean, it's an absurd thing. It's like this race to the bottom and it's a mm -hmm. misunderstanding because you're creating no value. You're not adding any value. You're just trying to be the cheapest one and who's cheaper than the other and so forth. And yet we don't see people following those trends. You mentioned the food thing. I mean, ShopRite have this deli and they sell a really horrible looking fed cook and stuff like that. Today in the news, they were saying Woolworths is now offering uh, Fed Cooks and Dombolo, which is that steam bread. Uh, I need to try it out because I guarantee it's not as nice as the township one. And that's the core of the point is that I can guarantee you that the food that has been made by a woman on that street corner or from her container in front of her house, 
that food is far more delicious and people will pay more for it and they'll prefer it. And I wrote about a woman in outside the BMW factory in Roslyn in Pretoria who produced these beautiful three series BMWs exported all around the world. And she sells 300 meals a day at the time for 25 rand. Today she'll be selling them for 50 rand a plate. And it's a plate with a stew and uh, vegetables and sample rice you can choose. It's really delicious stuff. And I said to her, how come you do so well outside the BMW plant? Don't they have a canteen inside? So she said, well, don't ask me, ask the staff. So all these guys were lined up there waiting for their meals. And I was like, why are you buying your food here? Isn't there a canteen inside? And later on, they showed me the canteen inside. It was a gleaming German kind of, you know, standard of, of food. And it was cheaper than her plates. So I said to them, why are you buying from her? And they said, her food doesn't sleep here. You know, we have the sense that this food in a container or a caravan on the street corner outside here and in Joburg is unhygienic and it's not fresh. It's exactly the opposite. It is fresh and hygienic. It doesn't sleep there. They're right. Whereas in the canteen, they're reusing it and so on. And then they said to me, also this lady's unasandla, which means she's got a hand which means she's got the touch of the food. She knows how to make the food we like. Inside, they pretend to make the food we like, but they don't know how to make that food. And then you look at the spicer sector. What's make the spicer sector so successful is that you stand in a queue for two hours at ShopRite or 40 minutes or whatever it might be, and then you pay a taxi to go there and you pay a taxi back. You pay a second seat for the taxi, for your groceries, and then you've got to carry and it's like crazy. People are carrying 10 kgs of flour on their head, 12 kgs of maize meal under their arm, five liters of on the other hand, and so on. And all the kids all carrying a checkers and walking down the road. Where's the spazer shop? Or the spazerette, as I call it. It's walking distance. They'll give your kids chappies. When you walk in there, they'll be like, here's some chappies. They're 5 to 10% cheaper. And this has been confirmed by that Nielsen study I mentioned that Across the board, the Spazerette is cheaper on the same branded item as ShopRite or Pick and Pay. So now you can get a cheaper product, the same brand you're looking for, Kubek beans or Salati sugar, at the Spazerette. You don't stand in a queue. You walk into that Spazerette. It's actually really clean and well laid out. And in the last week of the month when they say, you know, Mambara week, when the month is longer than your, than your money, you can go and get credit on food items if you're a woman. Uh, they won't give the men, you know, and they, <laughs> they won't give it on things like Cokes and stuff <laughs> like that, but they'll give it on food items and they'll do it without any interest. So, so suddenly you've got this sector which is understanding also what brands people like. They understand the lifestyle stuff. You find the spazerette. If someone dies in the street where they're operating, they'll make a donation in the culturally correct way to the family of groceries. So it's a real kind of understanding of what people want, how they live, helping them financially with things like credit on food items and so on. I'm interested in the Spaza sector because I think the majority are not owned by locals. Yeah. So it's interesting that you say the advantage that the Spazas have is that they know what customers want, but yet they are not actually yeah. locals per se. What's going on there? Look, it's extraordinary. You know, it's like I was interviewing a guy called Solomon who was an Ethiopian who'd taken 12 months, eight months, whatever, to get to South Africa 
crossing crocodile infested rivers and stuff like that. And his English isn't very good. And uh, he owns about six different supermarkets in Soweto. But almost all of these Spaza um, rets and stuff, you'll find that those Somalis, Ethiopians particularly, understand culture. They understand when a funeral happens, what do you do? They understand certain things, but they all learn the language. And so they speak Sutu or Koza. It's like insane. And they've put the effort into it. Bet you a formal retailer hasn't put the effort into learning what their local community speaks. But they're also living in those environments. They're renting from a South African. They live in those spaces. You know, so and it's a, it's a lesson in a sense around business is how do you really understand who your consumer is? And we've had an arrogance in South Africa in the formal sector for a long time of assuming that you just put an ad up there and people are going to aspire to it because some soccer player is holding it or some actress is holding it. And we haven't really tried to understand deeper insights about our consumers. And in many ways, we've been successful in the absence of any real competition. And that's starting to change. I just want to take you one step back. You said something about um, the Spaza owners, that it's also a generational thing that a lot of the current Spaza owners, they are third generation Spaza owners, mm. which means they grew up yeah. in Spaza shops. And possibly in South Africa, what's going to happen is three generations down the line, we will have the same. Maybe that demographic will also change. Yeah. Because what is this generational advantage that Somalis, Bangladeshis, yeah. Pakistanis have in the Spaza? sector? Um, FMCG retailers and dry grocery items, as in not prepared food, is not a game for sissies. It's a very low margin, very complicated business. And I think people underestimate how complicated it is. I think if you got Raymond Ackerman and you asked him if he'd do it again, he'd tell you there's no <laughs> way you do it. You either really understand how retail works or you don't. Because it's really about fast moving products, it's about lost leaders, it's about primarily volume, so no margin in it and you've got to be open long hours and if you stock something that consumers don't buy, it rots and you've got to really know what you're doing there. And the, the Somalis and Ethiopians and, and the Pakistani and Bangladeshis, those four groups dominate the space. The, generally you'll find that they have grown up in a similar type of outlet in Somalia, since little kids they were growing up in that, they've learned it. Those who haven't grown up in that space, when they arrive in South Africa, they go to a family member and they get a job with a family member and they get smacked around the head and told what to do until they learn it. Uh, and if they don't learn it, they end up going back to Ethiopia or Somalia. So it's an understanding of a certain industry sector, whatever you want to call it. The South African entered the Spaza market back then because there were no alternatives. Spaza meant in essence hidden or out of sight. They were illegal shops. So black people weren't allowed to own businesses and townships, even though it was their township. But they entered the Spaza sector in essence because there was nothing else. So who supplied bread and milk and airtime and Omo washing powder and Raja curry powder when you ran out of it. And so the South African entered it, but also the South African saw as his competition or her competition the other South African spies are down the street. The Somalian Ethiopian comes here and takes over the closed South African store because shop rights moved in Somali. Uh, the South African couldn't keep up, closed the doors. Somalia arrives, says, can I rent your outlet? He's like, cool, you can try your luck. 
but he pegs himself against ShopRite and Pick and Pay, and he never competes with the Somali down the road. In fact, he helps him out, and if he's a Somali and that's a Pakistani, he still helps him, or if it's a South African in some cases, he'll... So they peg themselves against the ShopRites in every way, price, service, quality of products, and so on and so forth. And that's why they've been successful. Not only do they understand it, but who they've pegged themselves up against. And that's meant that they have been very successful against the ShopRites. I mean, ShopRites just invested in a, a number of wholesale businesses and launched ShopRite Cash and Carry because they can't compete with the Spazaretta, at least then supply them. I'm interested in what you said, that there's no competition, because somewhere I was reading that hawkers also don't compete, which I thought was also quite interesting because that's the South African yeah. sector, right? Yeah, yeah. So no, the concept of not competing generally across these sectors is very, it's very big. So, you know, if you go to a row of vegetable traders at Baraguana's Taxi Rink or here in downtown Joburg, and you ask them, how do they compete with their neighbor? They'll say, no, I have my own customers. They will go together. They'll band together to hire a truck from Fruit and Veg City. So they've got the same product at the same price, same freshness. And if you see one of them will go off to the toilet and their customer comes to them, the person next to them does it, come here, come here, they're not there. They'll walk next door and they'll do the transaction on behalf of the person who's gone to the toilet. Because they see it, basically, they build their business a lot of the time around loyalty. If you ask a hair salon, do you compete with other hair salons? Generally, I say, no, I've got my own customers. So loyalty is a big thing. Um, and then offering something in some cases, like you'll find the fast food people say, no, 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 that person over there is not my competition. You say, why? But they're also selling chicken dust. No, 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 my recipe is better than their recipe. But if that person next door runs out of, of stock of maize meal, they'll walk over and say, can I bump some maize meal off you? I'll, I'll refund you or whatever later. So there's no competition as in like, no, no, you're the competition. The competition is a kind of fair competition. I compete because I offer a better product or I've got a better recipe or like hair. The hair salons as an example, you don't have a hair salon and employee staff. You um, rent out your station. So each of the salons got like an Airbnb kind of thing or Uber. Each one rents out the styling station. And you say to them, well, how do you compete with the others? I say, oh, I'm just really good with braids. You can see my braids are just better. So I get my customers. But if I'm busy, I'll say, no, no, use my colleague over here. You know. So there's a whole kind of cooperative um, competitiveness and increasingly, the competitiveness is against the formal sector because they see the formal sector as being anti-competitive. And there are. If you took the real competition commission rules, you know, ShopRite moves into a place. They won't allow the hawker to sell vegetables outside the ShopRite or the fruit and veg city, which is actually anti-competitive. So they all sit outside the main gates and still carry on selling their fruit and veg. So the sector that's competitive and anti-competitive, in essence, is the formal sector in these spaces. And I think that that's a huge mistake. And it's one of the things we should be addressing is that how do you create reciprocal business relationships? Because there's space for the trader to sell their veggies and shop right to try and compete. Uh, I want to look at the Chappies example sure. as an example of where things went wrong because people mm -hmm. didn't understand um, yeah. what what was actually going on there. Um 
I worked on on a range of Cadbury's products. Chappies was one of them, chocolate eclairs and stuff. And Chappies was huge in the townships. And the Chappies Little League was a Chappies school soccer tournament. And it's in the Guinness Book of Records as the largest school soccer tournament anywhere in the world. And, wow. um, and we had uh, the Did You Knows. I used to write the Did You Knows. Before Google, we had Did You Knows inside Chappies bubblegum wrappers. But... Um, we ran these campaigns in townships. We had like a bubble blowing competition. Chappies bubble gum is all about bubbles. The Chappies was the professor of bubbleology, and and uh, and we ran these in, uh, crazy kind of campaigns, crazy for the time in terms of the marketplace, only in township spaces. And then we worked extensively with spazers, hawkers, traders, with uh, branded things like tabletops and. Um, dispensers and aprons and incentivize them to stock uh, chappies and and at the time i mean chappies just owned this market it was just huge uh they were doing hundreds of tons and then uh, cadbury south africa was bought out by cadbury's from the uk the international company and they had an international ad agency and the international ad agency took over the brand and they decided that uh, the advertising was going to be much more like uh, uh, you know, it wasn't going to be kind of have a township um, lean. And they made it, call it very white suburban South African, and they were like, yeah, 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 but, you know, this is where the market is. There isn't a market in the townships. Not explicitly, but, I mean, you could just see their strategy shifted and we offered to help them, and they were like, no, thanks, you guys focus on the townships. And they basically destroyed that brand and, and – um, they uh, are now probably about a fifth, if not uh, smaller, and desperately trying to get back into the township space and trying to connect with township youth. You know, Gassinomic Revolution, my third book, was called Revolution because there's a revolution happening in these spaces. And I wrote about what I call the counter-revolutionaries, who are the people who turn their back on the township spaces and consumers kind of thinking that, this wasn't a market and who destroyed massive value. I spoke about champion toffees, which I'd mm -hmm. never worked on, but they destroyed it by getting out of the township space uh, and many others. The same with from an advertising perspective. There are people who just weren't talking the language of township people. I mean, I see some of the advertising and I'm like, you're just presenting and particularly to youth. You know, the assumption is that black youth are, are like American teenagers. Mm -hmm. And forgetting that, as an example, the vast majority of black teenagers are very spiritual, go to church. White teenagers aren't going to church, but black teenagers are very spiritual, and church is a big thing. I mean, look at the massive churches like the ZCC with millions of members, the Shambe Church. All those African churches are growing among the youth. Our kind of white churches, if you want, or the traditional churches, everyone's dying in the pews because <laughs> they're all old. And in the townships, they're leaping up onto mm -hmm. the stage and singing choirs is a massive thing at township schools and in churches and stuff. So it's kind of a miss of like, who is this person? Um, because again, we, you know, going back to the media, you read a negative story about some township youth who's this and that and the other. Of course, there's not a story about the township youth who's supporting their parents, who goes to church, who runs their little township business and is actually very proud of it. I had an interview highlighting what I call gassipreneurs, and there's a young lady, Balisa. Balisa, she started a hair salon when she was 16 and still at school. She's now 20. She employs 10 staff got this little hair salon 
And I took this photo of her and she's holding an iPhone 14 Max, the top of the range iPhone. She bought for 28,000 Rand cash from the proceeds of her little business. And she's even got a courier business operating from her hair salon. Why aren't we telling those stories and why aren't we talking to those people? I wrote a, a, a chapter in Gasinomics called Kerinomics about the township schoolyard kind of space. And I wrote about a guy, uh, Vodacom was wanting to launch a music service and we were like checking out how people get music. And we were in one high school and we we're like, there's all these teenagers and we we're like, where do you get your music from? They're like, Bluetooth. We're like, how do you get it on Bluetooth? And they point to the back of the class. They say, that's Bluetooth. This is a young guy. They call him Bluetooth and people pay him five rand per song and he Bluetooths the songs to them. You know, and it's just this great mm. thing and it's a different, and then you talk to them, well, what do you save for? They're like all saving. They get pocket money from the parents, saving to get my hair done. I'm saving to go out on an outing. Uh, what kind of outing? Oh, no, church outing. We're going to go to whatever or and, you know, they're no different from any other positive teenagers. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't the negative stories and those aren't true stories, but they're not the truth of the majority. And from an advertising perspective, let's talk to the truth of the majority. But Gigi, what I don't understand is, I mean, we 20 years down the line, a lot of people now at executive level in these advertising agencies, <laughs> marketing agencies are black people who have come from townships. So why is that reality not filtering through that way? Or maybe it is. Is there not maybe a... a, a well, actually, I have no idea. Why does it still take so much convincing? So there's probably two, a few parts to that answer. So the first one is that Yes, there's a lot of black people now in these organizations. If you speak to a lot of them, they will tell you that I'm not the decision maker. And I've been suggesting mm -hmm. for ages that what mm -hmm. we should be doing is X, Y, Z, and my white boss or whatever, mm -hmm. who has no concept of it, is saying to me, no, no, that can't be true. And as I said earlier, people said to me, when there's more black people in senior positions and in marketing, you won't have a job. And the opposites happen. Every day I have some saying, oh, it's so nice for you to tell these guys. I was invited to go and talk to Woolworths to their marketing team and stuff by a black director there who said, please just tell these guys, not every black person's living in a shack and that actually Woolworths has a big consumer market there that they should be attracting. In the group, I said, why aren't you selling blade steak? Black people don't buy rump sirloin and stuff. Why don't you have high-end blade steak in your store? Now I see they've got fed cooks, so maybe they were listening. But this was a black director saying, these X won't listen. And then said to me afterwards, said, you know, if I'd got a black guy to come and talk to these people mm -hmm. about the townships, they wouldn't have believed them. But the fact that you come here mm -hmm. and you tell them, and she was quite funny. She said, you know, when I look up, I see a white guy. When I look down and I listen, I hear a township guy. She said, you really rattle me. She says, I don't, she don't know. It's, it's this contradiction. I can hear one thing, but I see something different. So that's the one thing is that we still have a business sector, which is very white led, white traditional male, probably led in terms of decisions. And, you know, people are risk averse. It's like we've always sold Omo this way. Why would we change it now and do it differently? And so the poor marketing manager happens to be a black woman who used to live in a township or visits her mom and father or, you know, in the townships um, or rural areas is like shouted out in essence and won't get the promotion unless they kind of conform. On the other hand, you will be surprised how many black people in senior positions 
haven't lived in a township. Their family live in a township. They went to Model C schools. So, I mean, we're talking now 20 years down the line. Those people, when apartheid shifted, their families moved out of townships 20 years ago. Let's say that they were five. They're 25 now. They're in a position where they never, ever lived in a township. They might have visited a township. It was a big difference. So I also get that. I get black senior people saying to me, I mean, they need to be fairly... Uh, strong to be able to turn to a white guy and say, listen, you know more about this space, but I have a lot of it of like, hey, you spend more time there than me, you know, have things changed? Is this still true? You know, I often say just because I'm white doesn't mean I know something about white New Zealanders or white Italians. Mm -hmm. It's like, you Mm -hmm. can't assume that because I'm black, I know what other black people feel. And Mm -hmm. just because I'm white doesn't mean I know anything about Afrikaners. White South African Afrikaners, I don't. Mm-hmm. I had a Afrikaans girlfriend when I first moved to Johannesburg and the first thing that struck me was like she was so foreign to me. If I'd had a black girlfriend at the time, I would have felt more culturally comfortable than I felt with Renee. I was mm-hmm. like, she's like, they're, they're, it was so different. Mm-hmm. So I think we also make that mistake of mm-hmm. kind of assuming that um, because we belong to a certain racial group, even a certain language group, that we understand each other and we don't, you know. I want to focus on people who do get it right. And in episode one, Fuso Jomo, who wrote Prosperity Paradox, he highlighted Indomie Noodles in Nigeria as an example of a company who really invested in a country and really did it the right way. And then I was so intrigued to read that you were part of Indomie trying to get into South Africa and that you actually had doubts at the beginning. Uh, You can talk about the Indomie Yeah, so I guess the rewind is that I launched Parmalat cheese slices into the townships in 2005 and built basically a three billion rand a year business in cheese slices that never existed before. When I say I, my business, Minanawe. And we launched it only through Gorda and uh, FedCook outlets, in essence, in township fast food and distributed it through the township space and the rest was history. And you talked about getting advertising. We were convincing Parmalat, which is in essence owned by a French company, Lactatus, to spend money on launching cheese slices that they wanted to go into lunchboxes. And I said, township kids don't get lunchboxes. I needed a really brave marketing director who, who I luckily had at the time. And the rest was history. And so then I was contacted a while later, probably 2016 or 17, by Kellogg's who had made a joint venture with a company called the Tolerum Group in Nigeria and uh, they wanted to launch instant noodles. And I was like, guys, please don't waste your time. So anyway, I get further and further up the ranks, keep phoning me. I get called by a CEO of Kellogg's and he's like, please, will you meet the Tolerum Group guys? We'll pay you for your time. Come for dinner in Santon Squared, a very fancy restaurant. And there's these eight Nigerian Indian guys there, very formal. And they put me at the head of the table and say, we want to launch noodles in South Africa and we want you to help us. We've read about your cheese slice story and we want to do the same. I'm like, guys, please don't waste your time. They're like, please come to Nigeria. We'll pay you for two weeks. And I said, no, don't pay me. I've always wanted to go to Nigeria. You just show me around. So I went to Lagos for two weeks. And after the second day, I was like, this is insane. They sell a billion US dollars worth of 
instant noodles a year. They took Nigeria in the space of 10 years to the fifth biggest consumer of instant noodles on the planet. Indomie noodles, which is their noodles, is the biggest consumer brand in Africa, according to Kantar. And you've kind of never heard of it. Mm. And the reason I changed my mind, so they wanted me to launch it and I went there and I realized that they're very, very clever. So the first issue you have with food in Africa is fuel, charcoal, wood, a paraffin, a coal, whatever it might be. Instant noodles takes three minutes. The second thing is that people are looking for a, a filling starch. And so they would normally have maize meal or cassava meal in Nigeria. And in this case, noodles are filling. Also, people are looking for a high protein product and durum wheat is high in protein that makes the instant noodles. And so maize meal is around about between 7 and I think 10% protein and durum wheat noodles are about 17 to 20%, almost double the amount of protein content. Mm. So they basically kind of stumble on this idea that fuel is a problem, this is a filling product. And so, of course, they brought in a large pack. Most of the world has a 70-gram snack for rich kids. They brought out a 200-gram called a hungry man and a belly full was a 300-gram. So it's really big, four times the amount of noodles. And um, they use the local flavors. So, for instance, a snail is huge in Nigeria. These huge snails are the size of like two fists added together. Never Often heard of a snail well. sells for more than uh, beef and, and, and uh, chicken. How do you eat it? It's cooked in a, like a stew and uh, they have a pepper snail stew. So, of course, the Nigerians came up with a pepper sauce, noodle, and other local kind of flavors. So they really adapted, which was a, a rich, I think 19, 1950, a Japanese guy did the first instant noodles and they became this craze for really rich people who had time issues and convenience, wanted a quick snack on the go. They turned it into an African staple by understanding all of these things and adapting the product. So they, in essence, took the snack for rich kids in, in uh, across the world and they turned it into an African staple by understanding some really important things about this. And they said to me, all right, so the second or third day, I was like, okay, we're going to launch instant noodles. And they said, right, we've got a, a condition. The condition is that we will not be distributed through any formal channels, not even formal wholesale channels. I had segmented the market. Oh, sorry, just to rewind as well. What they did is when they launched instant noodles, they launched through what they call the Mashai women. The Mashai women are the fast food outlets, like I was describing, like the chicken dust and whatever. They launched it by sampling it through the Mashai women in Nigeria who needed to prepare a quick meal for someone who's on the go. So they said, well, we'll launch it through the food industry. And so the fast food, informal fast food, spaza sector, broad spaza, spazarette sector, and what I call midi wholesalers, which are informal wholesalers. And um, they said, you know, the formal sector will come to us if they want to stock it. But first, this is how we launch it. And we launched it in, uh, I think, about the uh, middle of 2017 and uh, took 40% market share from Nestle, in Maggie Instant uh, Noodles, uh, who were the, like, dominant. They were, like, 80% or 90% of the market. We took uh, massive, or they took massive market share in South Africa. It's here it's branded as Kellogg's because Kellogg's bought a share in their business. And uh, today, the market leader is uh, Kellogg's Instant Noodles. Maggie is declining dramatically. 
Why? Because Maggie have not focused on the informal sector. And today, Kellogg's or Indomie noodles are growing at around about 20%. They're making instant noodles, a staple like they did there. It's this incredible success story. And why are they successful? They adapted it to the African market. But more importantly, they just adapted the principles to understanding marketing in an African context and understanding how to adapt products to an African consumer with specific needs that they had. Every time I read anything that you said, even listening to you now, I just think, why is it so hard to shift people? No one was fired for designing the Toyota Corolla (laughs) and look at Tesla. (laughs) You needed someone who was prepared to do that. And that is completely the problem, is that you are incentivized to be successful, not to be brave. And you repeat this over and over and over again. It was one of the biggest issues I always had. And the brands that I worked on, I generally worked on it in Norway for 20 years, because when we got it right and made people think differently. It completely changed those spaces and they carried on doing well. But you'd created a culture where they understood that the township was an opportunity. You know, I say a lot of the time, you know, that people are data rich and insights poor. And insights are not about the past. Data is about the past. Data assumes and retrospective research assumes people do what they always did. Insights are about anticipating changes to consumer behavior because consumers are changing all the time. There's a saying, and I don't know who said it, but I stole it, and it says, when the pace of change outside your company exceeds the pace of change inside your company, your company will die. And I see that over and over again, how the pace of change outside businesses is just accelerating and people are trapped in data And we get even more trapped in data now. And the assumption is that humans are digital. Humans are analog. (laughs) You know, they don't follow these digital patterns. And yet we're trapped in assuming this and we keep on being shown that humans behave in ways that aren't dots and slashes Mm -hmm. and digital and stuff like that. I want to shift gears completely because we are running out of time. Just looking at the needs and aspirations of the informal economy, I mean, listening to you, one could just say, well, that's okay. It sounds like the informal economy is doing fantastically well. Entrepreneurs, by their very definition, shouldn't actually need support. Entrepreneurs are people who are a response to non-support in a way. Um, So why should there be this emphasis on business skills support, money support, um, uh, short-term loans, when it sounds like this sector is doing quite fine on its own and maybe government should focus on those 12% who are struggling. So there's a yes and no to that. So yes, certainly government should get out of the space. They know nothing about business and they mess it up all the time. They should address some of the bylaws and regulations that actually restrict and limit. They should address things like the Competition Commission and say, are large formal companies being competitive or anti-competitive? And if they're anti-competitive, they should do something about it because this is a large part of it is that these formal corporates are anti-competitive. Simple example, the price that ShopRite can get from Unilever is much better. They pay on 90 days and they get all sorts of promotions and spend and stuff like that. I asked the previous chairman of Unilever, who's your biggest customer? 
He said, ShopRite. I said, no, no, no. ShopRite's your biggest single customer. Your biggest customer is 100,000 Spaza shops. And as your biggest customer, you should be giving those 100,000 Spaza shops the same terms that you give to ShopRite, Pick and Pay, Spa, and so on. But they don't. And so the Spaza shop is getting your bag of Omo at 20%, if not more, and paying cash on instantly and not getting 90 days or 30 days or 60 days and so on and so forth. So there's one part of it is that are you creating an even playing field with the formal and informal economy? And no, we don't. So that's the first thing that I think we should be addressing. The second part of it is that I don't believe these are entrepreneurs. And I think that the term entrepreneur is badly used and has become like a glib term we use about businesses. And entrepreneur really implies an innovation and someone who's breaking ground in new fields and stuff like that and who's starting something. I think that the problem with entrepreneurs is that we create these role models who are people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, and so on and so forth. And actually, how many people are really going to be a, an Elon Musk? One in a billion. So while we're trying to use those as role models, hardly anyone's going to ever get there. Um, so that's my one problem. And the role models in my mind are the people who've been, in essence, call it moderately successful. The person with a hair salon in the township who's bought themselves a little car and buys themselves nice clothes and has great weekends and family and whatever, why aren't we highlighting that person? And, and those people, in my mind, are the real business backbone to societies generally. And those are, in essence, what we increasingly talk about, about these SMMEs and the future of business in the world. And I believe there's a massive thing around and the independent business sector. I prefer to call them independent business people rather than entrepreneurs. And they're all already there. We don't want to start new businesses. If you start a new business selling a fed cook on the street, they're competing with someone who's already there, which fine, maybe you want to do that. But if we're going to help people, it's all about scale up. And for me, all of these businesses that are out there, the vast majority of them have proven that they will survive. They're sustainable businesses. They're making money. But the limitation is that they're not generating additional wealth beyond their transactional wealth. And that wealth would be, can I sell this business? Can I start 10 branches like Raymond Ackerman started or the Nando's guys from their little shop to an empire? That is the growth that you need. Now, that growth is impossible to achieve without some form of credit, some form of assistance. The Nando's guys went to the Eindhoven family and said, please lend us money or give us money, you know. So, um, but how many, uh, you know, Mbali's who own a chicken dust outlet can go down the road and find a billionaire to help them, you know. So they don't have that access. I found that with my business. I realized that they were like, Networks of white people of any form, Afrikaans as an example, who are like helping each other and networked and they'd been to my class together or they'd been playing rugby and the same. And I was like, I was the outsider. I still in many ways feel I'm like this outsider of some of these networks and I've been very, very successful. But I was like, geez, I needed some luck and I did get some help, uh, for, you know, go and borrow some money but I couldn't get business funding. So luckily I had a house and I'd 
enough money in the house bond to pay for stuff. You know, but it's like a journey which had no support from other people, a fair amount of luck and a fair amount of being in the right place where no one else was at the right time. But, you know, Mbali's not going to be in the same lucky position and she is doing really well. But imagine if she could scale up. She wants to be in a shopping center and have this grand shop. She has these aspirationals of how to grow her business, extend her business. She wants to open up to her little chicken outlet and have more tables and chairs. But what she has to do is it's about cash flow. She has to buy one table today. In the next month, she buys another table and slowly, incrementally do that. Wealth is not created and businesses aren't created through incremental growth. You can't say, okay, today I'm selling 10 potatoes, tomorrow 11, the next day 12, the next day 13. Because of overheads and other logistical issues, I've got to go from 10 to 20. Because when I sell 11, I need another staff member. So that staff member won't be paid for by one, and, and so on and so on. I mean, there's a fundamental business principles. That means that we should be saying, how can we help these businesses scale up? First of all, let's recognize them as businesses and find ways to help them. How do we get formal banks to lend them money? I've spoken about a woman called Dabi Singh who rents out back rooms. She earns 150,000 rand a month from renting out about 20 back rooms, what we call back rooms and more like flats. She gets 150,000 rand a month into her bank account. She also earns a very good salary and she bought another property and wants to build more back rooms. She wants a one and a half million rand loan from her bank. She said, look at the money that's going into my bank account. I want to build more back rooms. And she waited about two weeks for them to get back to her and they turned her down. So she wanted to test them. She went and got a quote for a Mercedes with 1.35 million rand and she asked her bank to finance it. And in 20 minutes, they came back to her and they said, sure, it's finance is approved. <laughs> and as she said to me, one appreciates and one depreciates and they'll fund the one that depreciates mm. because they cannot wrap their heads around the fact that she is capable of running this business, that the money she's getting into her account isn't from selling drugs, it's from renting out rooms to people who can afford to pay for the rooms. So this thing about this business sector is that they do need help. There's not a business, there's not... Tiger Brands, Unilever, all of them have funding, have overdrafts, have ways of dealing with cash flow. They want to start a new factory. They don't finance it out of selling Omo bags. They go and borrow money from HSBC and then they build a factory and so on and so forth. So why is that different to this business sector? The scale is different, but the accumulated scale isn't different. You know, uh, I spoke about regulations and so on. Someone like Ndabi uh, Singh, who hasn't got an audited statement, but she's getting the money put in her account, we don't recognize that as a business because she doesn't have an audited statement and this kind of paperwork which we require. If you don't have a pay slip, you don't exist in this country in terms of the financial system. So, so all of these things accumulate to limit the scale of this. And the fact that this economy has grown and continues to grow is just a remarkable resilience and ability to really continue against the odds and be successful against not only the odds, but against the formal sector as well. And I just think that there's a huge way of transforming our economy by liberating the sector and I'm not saying that it should be growing independently of the formal sector. That's fine. Let ShopRite grow 
because of helping supply the sector. Maybe they should be selling the vegetables in bulk to the hawker outside their store instead of selling vegetables and chasing away the hawker. But the starting point is to recognize this is an economy. It's a legitimate economy. It's a thriving economy. And it's an economy for the future. And then we have to start saying, how do we change our financial regulations? How do we offer business services, loans, facilities in, for argument's sake, a shopping center, whatever? We cater to the sector in, in our plans. Somebody I was speaking to said, yeah, but um, do you think the informal sector will want to become form more formalized because that just means they're going to have to pay taxes, quite steep taxes in this country. Will they want to do that? Uh, there is actually a huge loss because they are not paying taxes. Yep. Your figures are astonishing when you rattle off all the billions that the informal economy is yep. producing. But what will that look like, that formalization of the sector? So. First of all, if we look at the at the at the sector, it's huge. They're all paying VAT and they're not claiming VAT. So there's an instant 15% benefit to the fiscus. We often don't consider that. They're buying products from the Unilevers and Tigers and Parmalets of the world and reselling those products. And hopefully Tiger and Unilever are paying their tax to the expected amount. And without their purchases of those products, those companies wouldn't be able to pay taxes. So, you know, we need to look at the kind of downstream and upstream and other complexity around the simplistic thing around tax. Having said that, most people are not operating informally or in cash because they don't want to be taxed. In fact, most of them very happily formalize in certain ways. And I believe in a hybrid formality. So I'll give you an example. These very large informal wholesalers turn over between 400,000 rand and a million rand a day. There's about a thousand of them in South Africa, generally Somalian owned or Ethiopian owned. And they were approached by some very innovative companies like Shop to Shop and Flash and Kazang and stuff. These are businesses that have financial products where you can, for instance, they put a safe into the wholesaler and say, put that 600,000 rand a day into the safe. We will take the money away. The minute you put the money in the safe, the risk moves away from you. It will appear on an app. The catch is, of course, that it's now visible to the tax man. But the advantage is, is that instead of you carrying this cash away from your wholesaler, you can pay electronically your suppliers, be it Unilever and so on and so forth. Every one of those wholesalers has gone completely cashless. They're putting in hundreds. There's a headline from Salpel, which is owned by FNB, saying that some of the wholesalers that they are servicing are depositing 40 million rand a month into these safes. Now, if they were not prepared to pay tax, why would they be doing that? The costs of operating in cash are far higher than the costs of not operating cash and the risks and so on and so forth. Equally, we see a rapid move away in the Spaza sector from cash payments, people tapping their cards. Once you have the ability to accept a card payment in the Spaza shop, consumers would rather tap a card than pay cash. So the reality is that, you know, my thing around hybrid formalization, there's things about informality that in many cases make them successful. Being on the street where your passerby walks past with an arm's reach of your chicken dust or your Coke or your bag of potatoes is an informal thing, just like the hot dog stand in Times Square. That's what makes them successful. Equally, 
accepting cash does not make them any more successful. So there's a complexity to it, which says that, and that, hence my thing around hybrid formalization. Most of those outlets would like to, for instance, if they're accepting card payments on a bank device, call it a Capitec or a standard bank card acceptance machine or a Yoko machine, they've got now a track record they can use in terms of financial transactions to raise a loan. They're also able, instead of taking the cash and walking down the road and being mugged when they go and buy more stock for their store, they're able to now pay electronically from their bank account and so on. So there's a real benefit in formality around certain things and there's a disadvantage around other things. Pick and pay was formalizing South African spaza shops in what they call pick and pay market. The mistake they made is that when they formalize the outlets, they'd say to them, you sell tripe. On Mondays, pick and pay does not sell tripe, so stop selling tripe. You find that people would buy tripe, but then they'd also buy maize meal and raja curry powder and stuff like that. So this is a specific example of a guy said to me, well, now I've lost all my customers used to come here for tripe on a Monday, and I haven't gained new customers. And that's an example of where formality doesn't work because the formality was so strict that it was actually a disadvantage in the long term. So... So yes, we want formality and we want to bring the sector much more into the scale-up phase. How do we get them growing their businesses, growing the number of businesses, making their business more profitable, employing more staff and giving those staff UIF and paying PAYE for them. Um, one of the problems is we create too many hoops. You know, they say it takes 40 days to register a business in South Africa and four days in Rwanda. We need a utility bill in South Africa to register your business. How many township businesses have proof of address? You can't register for CIPC without that. So, you know, why don't we find ways to enable people to register their business and enter this tax net? We make it difficult for them to. Your first book on business was called Carcinomics. And then you wrote a book called Carcinomic Revolution. Why did you add the revolution? And what do you think this revolution looks like in the next couple of years? So first of all, I called my business books Carcinomics because it was about the informal and township economy. And the problem is, is that when you say the word township or informal, the first picture in people's minds is small, unstructured, unsophisticated, low profit, subsistence, and 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 and. And of course, I was trying to say that this is not true. So Gasi is the term for the township, but Gasi was a broad term to cover off the total sector, whether it's rural or urban or township. The informal sector surrounds us. It's in inner cities. It's in suburbs. So, so that was why I called it Gasinomics. Um, and I wrote about um, the next big economic frontier in Africa is about a revolution where small people are doing really big things. And the next economic frontier is going to be the informal sectors of Africa. Uh, and that was in 2018. I was writing it in the early parts of 2018. And in essence, it was the start of a revolution. You know, it was the first few skirmishes that were happening. And I wrote about the fact that the Spiza sector was going to be the next big retail sector. And that this was part of the revolution was a retail revolution which I think was the title of my one chapter. This retail revolution where ShopRite and Pick and Pay were going to be hammered by the sector. And in fact, <laughs> vaguely thinking of a follow-on, probably Gasinomics Unleashed, which is the fact that um, 
this has actually been unleashed. This revolution is now really happening and it's happening worldwide. This gig economy that we talk about, the localization of businesses and working from home, 90% of informal businesses operate from a residential premises. They either operate from a container in front or they've converted part of their business or they're operating from the back. You know, the township mechanic has got his workshop at the back and so on. Hey, that's just like the whole world is moving to working from home and it's accelerating and it's going to continue to accelerate. So you can ignore it. You might not do the things I talk about creating hybrid formality, but ignore it at your peril because if you're a formal retailer, you're suddenly having to sit up and notice if you're a fast food outlet, you're having to sit up and notice. If you're a builder, you suddenly the backroom rental guy is better than you and earning more rent. And it's a mistake because, as I said, you know, the reciprocal benefit of jointly growing this is much bigger. But people are incredibly slow to get to this point. And this is despite the books and everything. I still find people coming to me saying, we still can't believe how big it is. Is it really that big? I mean... It's like five years from when Gasinomic Revolution came out. And if anything has got bigger, equally, I'm getting people telling me <laughs> how big the space is. Did you know how big this is? And I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is a mistake we often make. Back to the beginning is because of our negativity. We can't wrap our heads around the kind of positive growth and scale and the energy that's behind these sectors. We focus on the negative parts of it. And people have said to me in the past, are you just telling a few anecdotal stories about a few people? And I'm deliberately telling them because I want to humanize them and I want to celebrate those people. But no, I'm not telling the story of one person who's an extraordinary outlier. I'm actually talking, uh, you know, how many stories do you want? And, <laughs> and they're there. I did a presentation at a shopping centers association in 2019 and I presented my stuff and there were like 3,000 people at the Cape Town Convention Center and I said, your shopping centers are going to die. And, I, and of course, starting to happen already. But afterwards, I was approached by a guy who was holding my book. He'd bought my book somewhere and he said, I work for a company that has stores in every single township. He says, you speak rubbish. There is no way the sector is as big as you say. I would have seen it outside my stores. So he says, but I bought your book. I'm going to read it. And I'm going to get back to you and tell you why you speak rubbish. And he's an ex-rugby player, quite a big guy. And he was like towering over me, telling me, I mean, you know, <laughs> he's taller than me and I'm not short, you know. And anyway, I thought it was quite funny. I was like, no, no, it's cool. Let me know. So a while later, I got a WhatsApp from an unknown number, and it's a picture of a woman selling Fetcook. And uh, it says, hi, Betty has been selling Fetcook outside my shop for the last eight years. Betty makes 6,000 rand a month profit. I have never seen Betty until today. Thank you for opening my eyes. And then a while later, I got another one, and there's a picture of a young, dashing black guy holding up hair extensions. It was like, hi. Mandla's outside my store in Umtata Plaza in the Eastern Cape. Mandla's been selling hair extensions for the last five years. Mandla makes X amount of money a month. I have never seen Mandla. And I got these regular things. And it was this thing of if you don't open your eyes to the space, you may be there, but if you never opened your eyes and really looked, 
at that space. It's like the matrix, these two universes side by side, that you've got to step out of one into the other. There you need a red or a blue pill. In this case, you just got to open your eyes and go there. For episode show notes and exclusive content, visit africanoptimist.co.za, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms or listen via our website. Thank you for spending time with us.